I didn't need a wake up call. I really look at PPP and the divergence of, you know, who really excelled during PPP and were able to deliver in the marketplace. It was a very small set of financial institutions. Because of that, there were a lot of businesses that missed out that had to close their doors, weren't able to continue on. Now, it, it, I was at an institution in five days, we had a PPP loan yeah. process up and running off of Salesforce. Very simple, didn't take a lot. And we were able to extend record amounts of capital wow. into the market. And so, you know, those are the things that really gets me excited. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Banking on Disruption. I'm Fred Cavenna. You've turned into show number three, and let me tell you, it's a whopper. Last Tuesday to Thursday, Encino, the Salesforce-powered bank operating system, held its annual conference in Charlotte. Since neither Dane nor I were able to attend this year, we invited two blockbuster guests to fill us, and you, in on all we missed. First up, we'll be joined by Devin Griffin, Director of Product Management at Silicon Valley Bank, a division of First Citizens Bank. On deck is Eric McCoy, Principal Banking Consultant at Zenify. I can tell you we're super pumped to be bringing you not one, but two perspectives from the Inside Conference. Finally, in this installment of Banking on Disruption, Data and I will discuss unintended consequences in AI, and now that the call for submissions is open, why you should consider submitting a proposal to present at this year's Dreamforce during our popular Quick Take segment. And while you're listening to this podcast, why not take a moment to follow us on LinkedIn at the Banking on Disruption podcast and on Instagram at at Banking on Disruption. Now sit back and strap in because our show is coming to you right now. Hello, this week, Dan and I are excited to welcome Devin Griffin. Devin is a director of product management at Silicon Valley Bank, a division of First Citizens Bank and a leading executive in financial services with over 14 years of experience in global banking. Devin began his career with credit handling portfolios of middle market and institutional real estate clients before pivoting to product management, where he now leads C-suite level initiatives for enterprise banks. He has led multiple Encino banking platform implementations, accounting for over 5,000 users and over 10 business lines utilizing customer-centric product design as a foundation to deliver on business value with a focus on enhancing end user experience. Devin has become a trusted advisor within the financial services SaaS community, speaking at past events for Salesforce, Encino, and WalkMe on driving innovation and creating a competitive edge through digital transformations. Devin attended Temple University for his undergraduate degrees in real estate and finance, as well as his Master of Business Administration in strategic management with a focus on digital innovation and service design theory. He's an active member of his community, supporting both Temple as well as other volunteer organizations, and lives outside of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, with his wife and four children. Devin, welcome. Thanks for making the time to chat with us, especially this quickly after the conference. I hope you've had a little bit of a chance to dig out of your inbox. <laughs> a little bit. Still have a couple hundred to go, so you know, I'll be <laughs> most playing here the rest of the week. So I thought we would kick off nice and easy by asking Devin, what is your background using Encino? So like for how long, what products and features have you worked with and used? Like just give us the whole scoop. Uh, So when I originally started with Encino, it was the 
you know, new technology on the block. And it's kind of the cool thing. And now, uh, you know, showing up at the conference, I, I realized, I guess I'm part of the OG community of it, uh, which makes me feel very old. But uh, I started uh, around 2016 uh, when I was with TD. Uh, we were doing our major transformation of the whole credit infrastructure, databases, you know, pretty much everything under the sun. We, we were going with this you know, new technology uh, called Encino. Uh, and we were one of the big enterprises to go uh, after, you know, SunTrust, Bank of the West were using the product, but it was mainly uh, credit unions and, and smaller institutions. Uh, so it was a pretty big deal uh, when we had selected it. Uh, and it was really fun. Uh, they were always somebody that they were coming up to New Jersey to our tech center, uh, everywhere down from the C-suite down to product managers, everybody, and really trying to learn from us and grow the product. Uh, and thinking back to then in 2016 of things of, they were telling us like, imagine, you know, what the future would be. And it was, then we would look at it actually in the platform. We're like, oh, it's pretty far from there. Uh, but I continued working in the, that segment for TD for a couple of years as we implemented new business lines. Uh, and then really drove some additional uh, technology on it. We used it to support our PPP program uh, and some other initiatives. Uh, and then I jumped over to Silicon Valley Bank and uh, we were implementing it there. And really uh, purpose there was to continue seeing how we can really drive ROI. Um, and so I think when you look at it from the now and like, especially showing up the conference, like a lot of those things back in 2016 that they were saying, like imagine when are real realities that a new customer just turns on. Uh, so it's really cool to just see it come full circle and, and see people actually, you know, put their money where their mouth is and see that come around with it. So, um, you know, pretty much every topic under the bank platform, uh, I've been able to kind of see come to life organically. Yeah. Seeing the product evolve, you know, SunTrust was a client of mine back when I was at Accenture and seeing where the product was then and how the products evolved today, both in depth and in breadth, right? You know, Encito started out of Live Oak Bank, you know, with that commercial lending product, that commercial lending products continued to get more resilient, have more features. And at the same time, Encino has been investing in some of the other areas of banking. I think they, they brand themselves, you know, bank operating systems. So they've rolled out products in, you know, treasury management and in retail and in deposit origination, uh, mortgage. And just seeing the amount of, of investment that Encino's made in their product is very impressive. I, I wonder, Devin, like, you know, have you had a lot of exposure to some of those other products as well? Or has it primarily been in the commercial space? My experience is predominantly in the commercial space uh, through the different organizations I worked in. Um, we either had different instances or, or different initiatives that were in, you know, small business, uh, retail, treasury, and uh, some of those leaders implemented it. So uh, got to kind of go along for the ride and, and watch it. Uh, and, you know, in the lens of, you know, can you really put all this stuff under one platform and is it going to disrupt the commercial platform? Um, and, you know, it's a little TBD on, on some of those as everything kind of comes together. But it is something that's there, right? And and you can just utilize it, right? And I think that's one of the really cool things about it is that you can keep building on it like Lego pieces, which is obviously the whole you know premise of being on Salesforce and um, you know what you can do with the platforms. But I think they really, to your point, by becoming really a bank operating system or platform, they want to be the Lego pieces instead of just hey, I'm going to put a custom object on something from Encino. It's that you'll have configuration embedded into the product that will allow you to create the experiences and keep them as separated as you want to. So um, I think in a good way to their products, I haven't had to have much overlap to it, but there have been those turned on in the systems that I've used. Um, 
and we were able to kind of stay in our lanes and really use it as a total operating system. It brings up something that I want to maybe pull forward that we're going to ask later in the conversation. But one of the sessions that I was interested in attending was the uh, Your Future with Salesforce Flow and Encino session. And, you know, Encino being a product uh, that's been around for as long as it has, obviously heavily reliant on, on workflow. And I've been very curious to, to think through how Encino is responding to Salesforce sunsetting workflow. I think Process Builder, a little bit less of an issue. Um, but did you attend that session or have you dug into that topic? How is Encino uh, customization going to work in a post-workflow rule world? Uh, one of my colleagues from the bank, uh, she attended it. Uh, she's our lead designer and and uh, she takes the lead on all of those kind of things. But uh, it is something I'll say from, you know, the conversations we have from a partnership conversation on exactly that topic, right? Like how many people are going to have to redo half their systems to be able to upgrade the flow? And is it really that worth it? Slash, you know, what are you going to do? Are you just going to kind of lift and shift to it? Or are you going to really kind of harness the capabilities that Salesforce has really invested in and go from there? Um, the thing that I like just from, you know, holistically starting with automation that began almost everything had to go through Apex and then it was, okay, we can use some of these workflow rules and are they really advanced enough? Um, and it, then you really get into flows and it gives you kind of the Baskin Robbins of everything you want to use under the free sun. And that's a lot of the stuff that when I talk to engineers, when we look to design things is really fun. Um, and I actually think it gives you much more flexibility using the managed package, right? So uh, if you look at something like uh, the digital application, right? Or mm -hmm. uh, some of the other kind of aspects before in the managed package, it would be it's managed package, it's blacklisted code. You got to use it, take it or leave it, right? And if you don't like just even the smallest thing about it, customized, right? And you hear a lot of those stories out there in the enterprise, right? That like, it's just a constant conversation. Oh, I don't like this one field. Now everything goes out, right? With flows, it offers truly that template, right? Take in the managed package and adjust it however you want. It's clean visibility, right? You yep. can see everything that's going on. And they did that. I stopped by the, uh, the small business booth uh, to check out what they were doing there. Uh, and the individual that was presenting from Encino, I mean, she just literally clicked open the flow and she said like, here, this is what we're doing. And it was so nice and easy. And I, that's what I love about flow, you know, technology and names, like you said, like it was Apex and it was process builder. Then it was this, then it was that <laughs> they're always going to keep changing. That's the whole kind of point of being in the SaaS community is that you, you got to be on the latest and greatest. The, the thing I like the most that I think is the most revolutionary around flows and why it helps in the Encino world is because of that transparency especially with being in the financial services world, you have to explain everything you did, right? And I remember uh, at my predecessor bank, you know, we would go into rooms and, and regulators would say, you know, prove out that this is actually working, right? And you open up a JIRA ticket and they're like, no, 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 no. I want to see it in the system, right? And you're looking at process builder, like no one's going to understand this, right? It's right. right? And um, we can literally open up a flow and put it out for somebody, right? It's that simple. And I think that's what really gets the benefit for Encino, in my opinion, is that now people can really understand what's going on. They can really try to take in the product. And instead of just jumping to, hey, I'm going to customize everything and do my own thing, you can actually really understand it in plain English. And so I've had a conversation with a bunch of the guys in product, how you can use that to your advantage. Um, and specifically, a lot of the stuff we look at um, in general and discussing with them is, you know, if you don't like a UI they built, but you like the data architecture, 
build another flow on top of it. And you can design your own UI for that very quick, like, hey, these five, six things, I want somebody to answer in a different way from my institution. And mm -hmm. so it gives us that flexibility again, without kind of throwing out the baby with the bathwater, just because of the fact that we didn't like one thing that someone that Encino designed, you can actually really partner with them a lot more through it. Yeah, I think that makes a ton of sense that there's, you know, an opportunity to reduce your overall technical debt by leveraging the, the flow product. Yeah, it's a great segue. You know, you were talking about the, the inside conference and what was for you, what was the most exciting takeaway from this year's conference? So the thing I liked the most, uh, and you know, when I landed, I got the opportunity, uh, Justin Norwood and I have known each other for a little bit who heads up their data and AI and, uh, he and I were able to meet with my team and, and, um, you know, kind of have an informal discussion around this topic, but you know, in, in most insight years, it's been latest and greatest feature and now retails out and it was, you know, everything that they're going to do this year was just so focused on data. And I think it's just so important, right? It wasn't, Hey, let's turn on a billion new features, right? It was like, let's really harness what you have. And, uh, he and I were talking a lot about that, uh, in terms of what Encino is now able to do. If you sign off on their partnership for data, what they're looking at using it in their own models, but it's really around you know, you get something and especially there were, I think more customers than probably prospects this year, just on my kind of talking around and, and things like that. And I think that's telling of, okay, now we've all invested across the industry in this thing. We're all using your latest and greatest, like why, you know, there's that feeling of, I need more. And I think, mm -hmm. it, you know, hit it spot on, you know, between their keynotes uh, and then the different sections on data and AI from, uh, you know, third parties or Justin himself, I know spoke on it. Um, it's really there. Like you, you got to take a step back and slow it down and really understand if you're asking somebody to collect a piece of data, what are you doing with it? Right. And what are you really going to invest in and use that? And, and to me, every piece of data is like a, a penny in your bank account, right? If you're not accounting for every single piece of it, they're not going to add up to the sum. And so I think that was a really cool way to come into a conference and actually feel like, Hey, I didn't see anything that new or that exciting. But then when you take a kind of a step back and you realize it's like, oh, I, I should be actually getting more out of my system, right? And that was the kind of feeling I got out of it. And then that allowed me to go into sessions, really engaged to see like, what am I missing, right? What am I not using? What are other people using? And, and go from there. That's an awesome point. And I, I said, it wasn't at this year's, I was at last year's. And I got that sense as well when I thought back to, you know, earlier in Sino conferences, it seemed like a pretty decent mix of, banks that had signed up and are, are on board and, and figuring out how to either implement or maximize and about half that were still looking at Encino and kind of kicking the tires and saying, you know, hey, is this something that is right for my bank? And there's certainly a certain energy around that. And, you know, selfishly as a consultant, we always like to, you know, have those conversations with, with banks that are evaluating new technology. But last year, even, I got that sense that it really became more of a, a user conference, more of a practitioner conference. And most of the conversations were from the perspective of people that had been on the platform for years and are talking about, oh, well, I took this feature and I took it this direction. And oh, I really wish Encino would do this. And I definitely found Encino last year, I'm assuming this year as well, spending a lot of time listening to their customers about what they wanted to see the platform do and, and really acknowledging some of the trade-offs or some of the things that maybe aren't working as well uh, and uh, baking that into the product map. You did touch on one topic that I, I wanted to get to. Obviously, 
we know that AI is like everybody's top of mind topic these days. And I think it's funny because, you know, I was at World Tour the week before last and, you know, a lot of my clients sent, you know, two or three times as many people as they would normally send, you know, so they could go and ingest everything that they heard about AI and kind of figure it out. And I, I said, AI is great, but you need to have, have a handle on your data before you can really get, you know, anything out of leveraging, you know, any kind of AI model. But I know Encino has been thinking about AI for a while. I forget how many years ago it was. It was definitely pre-COVID when they announced the, the, the NIC, the Encino mm-hmm. IQ uh, initiative. And I haven't honestly kept up with that. But was there a, a lot that came out of the Insight conferences here on what Encino is doing with AI and kind of how they're baking you know, more AI or different models into their, their products or journeys? Uh, I'd say it's more, you know, going back to, you know, when we talked about how long, you know, being in the Encino industry. And, and I remember distinctly you know, when Nathan Schnell was at Encino, you know, meeting him in Mount Laurel, you know, he was presenting to a whole bunch of us and, and he you know, told us this crazy idea, right? And so what it was going to be able to do and automate it this and automate it that. And then it was effectively, right? And then like a year later, they announced it as a formal product. But to your point, it's really kind of like there in the background, um, and I think it, it really is, and Sino's doing it right. They're not just like throwing in some fancy tool to it. Yeah, some of the products run on Nick. Uh, you can use it, um, but it really is around, you know, you, you got to, us as a community need to harness all this data, right? The only way that an AI model is going to really work for credit and for the type of banking that we all do, no matter how big or small, right? As long as you're outside of your general, just like peer-to-peer and things like that, we need to really understand how enterprises are looking at. Right. And, and that's what Encino has to offer a lot of us is that community and that understanding of the data and, you know, what is specialized and not. And I think that the vibe I got from talking to everybody and attending some of the sessions was more so like Encino's, they're ready to actually like make this and start turning on the engine. Um, I think they've built a lot of the components. I think that it's all there, but it's now putting, you know, gasoline into the engine. And that's where they talked a lot about it during the keynote and to some other aspects of it of, utilizing the customer data, um, being able to really run trend analysis and really start advising all of us on what's there in the industry based off of, you know, real collected data. And um, I think that's going to be the coolest thing about it. Um, and so, because to your point, everybody talks about AI right now, right? It's, it's, it's literally, you can't log into LinkedIn or anywhere else <laughs> in the world and seeing somebody tell me that, you know, they use AI or chat GPT to do something. And you know, to me, it, it, it actually reminds me very much of, uh, you know, right when COVID started, uh, we have a family friend that runs a rare bookstore, right? He was talking about, you know, how, you know, books are flying off the shelves all of a sudden, right? And everybody wants a first edition sitting behind them on their Zoom background of, you know, yep. what we did, 20 other different things, right? We want to show they have it. Then to me, that's what AI is right now. Everybody wants to go buy some SaaS platform, turn on AI, right? The only what people that are winning contracts are because they have an AI component, right? And it, it's becoming something of just like the book sitting on the bookshelf. Nobody really knows what to do with it outside of, you know, the the true trend centers in the industry that are predominantly outside of financial services. And I think that when you look at credit and you look at banking, um, we've been collecting data for so long and you know, predominantly for regulatory purposes, but now it's really trying to change it into how can you protect the bank the best, how you can protect the industry. uh, And then how do you actually, you know, kind of utilize it to basically make an exoskeleton for your bankers 
to just put them on, you know, super speed to be able to help customers. And I think that's going to take a long time to kind of change those trends. Right. And, um, that's where I feel, you know, it was nice coming in and yeah, there were some topics on it, but to your point, it was mainly on data. It was not, Hey, here's some fancy feature. Let's go, you know, turn it on in your sandboxes. And you had every consultant, you know, pestering you about how they can turn it on in 60 days. Um, and I think that was the way <laughs> in the industry. Guilty, to, uh, guilty. Yeah, we, we all do it, right? We all want to turn on something in 30 days and improve we did it. Um, and we do those hackathons all the time, right? And um, But at the end of the day, you're, you got to really understand what you're delivering and how that's adding to a customer. And that's something I think Encino actually gets in space. Yeah, I love the the reminder of the evaluation of people's Zoom backgrounds. I don't know if it still exists. There was that Twitter account that would rate people that would go on television based on their their background. And it, it definitely became a, a, a bit of a niche business at the time. Um, I mean, we're, we're not recording the video. My background would probably get an F today if we were. It's just a, <laughs> a very plain vanilla conference room. So from a data perspective, what, what is Encino's push into data this year? Is it about helping banks get more of a handle on their data, make sure that the data governance is more straightforward, make sure the data is cleaner. Yeah, I think it's more of um, getting a handle of what you're actually using and, and it, it's almost the conformity measure, right? They're not conforming data it, you know, from an industry and then spitting you back out a number necessarily. Um, but it's more around like, how are we actually gonna look at this, right? And giving you some of the trends that are out there that may actually, even as a customer, you could pause and be like, oh no, that's that's completely wrong. Well, well, why is it wrong? Right? Prove to me it's wrong. Right. And a lot of us know actually the real answers. Right. And I think that's actually when you deal with like frontline bankers, no matter what institution I worked with, it's always like Groundhog's Day, right? It's the same conversation. No, oh, that data's wrong. I'm telling you it's this, right? And I actually trust my bankers um, when they tell me that because 90% of the time they're actually correct, right? They know their customers, they know their deals so in and out. Um, and to me, that's really what Encino's kind of stance is, is like, okay, how do we translate that, right? How do we actually get it to the point that the industry is looking at things in common terms? How do we actually then use that to leverage it? Because if, you know, one of us is talking about days to close, but we're only actually meaning X, and all of us are saying days to close, which is a managed package field that they're calculating, but we're using mm -hmm. it for Y over here, well, then they're going to look like they're on super speed and I'm going to look like I'm the slowest bank in the world. Right. In reality, there's no apples to apples comparison. And I think that's one of the things that in the commercial space is the hardest thing across the industry. Like, how do you really compare one process seed to another? Um, and I think that's really their stance is really, you know, what are you going to feed into these models? What does it really mean? Let's start actually looking at it. And I think that's why they were so, in my opinion, so public about, you know, they were they were very excited. I think they used the percentage like 97 percent of banks have signed up to use, you know, this data sharing service. Um, and I think that's that's what it's really going to lead to. It's really understanding what you're collecting, right? And I think that's the value add. And then once you understand it, then you can use it for whatever purpose. You want to use it for AI and training a model, go for it. If you want to use it for just truly saying, I understand the value and the KPIs that I'm getting out of the system and being able to articulate that back up, you know, to your leadership or sponsorship of something, right? That's That's a value add, right? And so I think that was really the kind of theme out there was that, you know, the data is broader and more purposeful if it's cleaner than just AI. But I think AI is going to be the conversation that forces people into 
oh, I can't use it until I get clean data. Okay, I'm going to finally go clean my data after 10 years. <laughs> from, from your lips to God's ears, I hope. Conversations I've been having for a long time. I want to pivot just for a moment. You know, obviously this year's conference took place in the shadow of some of the recent regional bank news. Uh, even during the conference, PacWest, you know, had some some sheer volatility after it disclosed that its deposits fell about 10%. Uh, how was this reflected in the conference? You know, what was the general mood? You know, were there any new approaches either from Encino or maybe from some of the other banks that you talked to around how to gather and retain deposits? Yeah, I'd say from um, the Encino perspective to all of us as, as customers or even prospects just in the financial services industry was um, a lot of compassion, I felt, across the board. Uh, whether it was intentional or not, you didn't feel a lot of that sell. Um, you know, obviously, you know, if you talk, talk to them about it, they're salespeople. They want revenue like anybody else. But uh, I think they really are, are acutely aware of it, right? Half the people that work in Encino, probably actually more than that, used to be bankers, right? Some of them are, you know, recent converts. And... Um, you know, they, they understand what it's like, right? They had either been through, you know, the SNL debacle or the dot-com buck or 2008, right? In the Great Recession. And, you know, this is, you know, unfortunately something that continues to occur over time and time again. Um, but they were really, really, um, you know, empathetic to the fact that people were walking in in a lot of different situations or thinking about that, right? And, and recent announcements, right? You walk in to the conference and it, you, know, you were happened to be from Pac West, which I don't know if they were there or not, but like that's all of a sudden your whole, you know, viewpoint on life changes. And so uh, definitely kudos out to them on, you know, having that reflection. They were just there to support. Uh, I think that amongst the community, there was definitely much more um, of an aspect of togetherness. Right. Um, and so like, it, it's always been a really good spot to come. You see old colleagues. It's one of my favorite things. Mm -hmm. You know, I get to see, you know, the old TD team always is comes. Uh, <laughs> and when I say old, it's it's like 25 people, 20 of which are like brand new people that I have never worked with. And then five people that I worked with <laughs> back in the heyday. Um, but it's always, it's always a great time, right? And you get to see people you know. And I think that's like any conference. I think this year was specifically different that you saw a lot more conversations amongst the banks, talking mm -hmm. to each other, trying to really understand best practices and and really just you know, how you can protect talent. Uh, I think it's a very rare talent set in the Encino world. As, as large as they're getting, it's still rare to have people that have done so much. Um, and it's a small community. People trade up everywhere, right? Even joining our new institution, I met people around it that were at SunTrust or other areas, right? And, and so it's definitely a small community and that really shined in a positive light this year. Um, and, you know, I think even the enterprise uh, banks, all of us were talking and uh, just really how can we help each other out? How do we help protect talent and people? Um, so I think that was, you know, you can read all the headlines on all the doom and gloom out there. I take the positive light, at least of that conference provided us an opportunity to come together as a community and and try to do what we can with what we have. That's fantastic. I, I love that. I love the community aspect of these conferences always. You touched on something that that I hadn't thought about asking, but I, I will now, which is the the talent and the very specialized way that Encino is different than Salesforce. You know, you can't just take a Salesforce practitioner and throw them into an Encino implementation and expect them to succeed. And I founded the Encino practice at Silverline and helped them scale their capabilities you know, for the first three or four years that that practice was, was moving. I've nurtured uh, Encino practice at a couple of other SIs in my career. 
And one of my suggestions is that if I look at Salesforce more broadly, Salesforce has done a ton to help democratize information, to help, you know, new practitioners learn, you know, trailhead, you can go and you could get, I think, a million badges. I mean, there's just, you know, so many things out there to learn. I have seen that shift a little bit from Encino in the last couple of years, but it is very difficult as somebody new to the ecosystem or maybe somebody that's starting a Salesforce career in financial services and wanting to learn more about Encino to really, you know, get access to training materials, to get access to sandboxes, to really, you know, have an opportunity to leverage the product. You know, I wonder from from your perspective, number one, do you do you see that the same way? And number two, as you've been building Encino capabilities at, at TD and, and then at Silicon Valley, you know, how have you dealt with that particular challenge? I think it's a new university what Jen Adams has done with it. Uh, it's definitely going a long way from just, you know, some videos and things into, you know, it's, it's bridging on, you know, getting there. But to your point, it's not trailhead. I, I think designing a trailhead is next to impossible, right? It's just what the resources that Salesforce has to be able to do demo orgs and, and developer orgs to do that is it, it's great. Right. But, um, it's definitely highly specialized to them. Um, I think reading like the gold standards, Sino community, all those kind of things, you can definitely get uh, enough to be kind of, I call it conversational Spanish. If you've never touched in Sino, right? You, you can understand it. You can get through it. Um, I think the biggest hardship into breaking into the financial services industry has always been the, you kind of had to be there um, mm -hmm. to really be able to walk into a room, right? If somebody just wants to turn on Salesforce CRM, yeah, you got to know the industry a little bit, but you really got to know Salesforce CRM, right? And you got to walk into a room. And, and I think that's why you see a lot more people that are practitioners of that. And, and, you know, anything that's more of a platform related thing on Salesforce, you see a lot of people that have jumped in their careers in industries. People that have done Encino particularly stay in the banking ecosystem. Um, and I don't think that's because you can't pivot out of it and there's not trend, you know, skills that can kind of translate to other industries. I think it's the opposite. It's like you said, you can't really bring that many people into it. Uh, in my career, uh, I was fortunate that it, at TD, there was, you know, it was such a big initiative. There were, there were so many of us across the bank, right? And, and some of us, you know, really dove into learning, you know, it from a technical side, which is what I wanted to go do. Others really stayed more on the process side. So, you know, we were a really large institution and, and the uh, management put a lot of weight behind it to use that internal talent. We obviously had Accenture and others there too to help out from that. Um, over my career and into the later ages of the TD days and then, you know, how I've been looking at talent, you know, just more broadly and even advising people on, you know, building out their Encino teams. Um, finding the unicorns of the Encino world, somebody who was a banker, who understands technology and Salesforce's platform, who also has a deep connection to Encino. We exist out there, right? Um, you know, there, there's probably like 10, 15 people that can really claim that. Um, but what you really have to do from building that talent is building teams. And, and everybody always says that, like, oh, I'm going to build a high performing team, right? But they really just stick a bunch of individual contributors together. Right. And it's just like, you're good at this, you're good at that. And that's going to work. Right. The way I look at it is that you have to almost have a holy trinity. Right. And everybody has to be actually in that holy trinity to support each other and figure it out. Right. You're going to have one person that's probably an ex consultant, you know, just knows how to execute and go that day long. You need somebody who actually can walk into a room and the bankers are going to respect, you know, whatever that background is. Right. It could be somebody who's been doing projects that just has that trust. It could be somebody like myself that used to be a banker. That's always what I break the ice with. 
even you know coming into a new institution after spending 11 years at TD, I was still able to walk into the room and say that I've, I've managed clients, I, I've underwritten credit, right? I've had a credit officer throw a package back in my face and told me it's horrible. <laughs> like I've experienced those things, and and that really helps break the ice, right? And you know, I think then the last part of that is you need someone who really has understood and seen. And you always need three resources for where one would do. Maybe, maybe not, right? Hopefully, uh, you know, as things get better and people are able to upscale into it, it should hopefully get to the point like a Salesforce CRM where you can have one individual jump industries and, and you're good to go. I think that at this standpoint, you're still looking at something of, you're really only looking at about 10 years of, you know, the company being in existence. And from an enterprise level, you know, you're just breaking that, you know, nine, 10 years of when BankWest and SunTrust started. So there's not a tremendous app out there that you can just like hop, skip and steal. Um, I do think that you are seeing more people that are attributing to that and actually saying, hey, if you have talent that's in this space, let's have a conversation, right? It's a small world. People want to expand their careers. I am not a person that believes somebody's going to work for me for 25 years. Um, if I get a couple of good years out of somebody and then they want to go experience something else, I hope it's within the organization that I work in. Um, but if it's not, I'd rather, you know, help that person out. Right. And, uh, you can talk to anybody on my current teams or old teams and they'll pretty much attest to that. Um, and I think that's what you're going to start seeing more in the industry is actually that community kind of trading up resources to help build and build and build till we hit a critical mass that all of a sudden you can go out to market and you, you can just get an Encino person. You know, Devin, you were earlier, you were talking about at the, at the insight conference, the emphasis around you know, data analytics and how you're able to use data using the platform, the Encino platform, and just a lot of energy in that area. We're also talking about AI and to your point, it's hard to get away from that topic lately. One of the things I'm curious about, and I'm, I'm not sure if they covered this much at, at the conference or not, or what you know about it, but what's going on with regard to fraud detection and how AI is going to play a part there and Encino's platform, et cetera. Like, do you know much about that or was that talked about much? Definitely not my domain. Um, so I, I leave that to all the, the people that spend all their day looking through transactions. Um, but uh, there were some sessions on it. Um, mm. I really think it just comes down to, you know, to understand in my eyes, you know, the, the highest level view. To understand fraud, you have to understand what's good, right? That's what you're comparing against. I mean, that's what every single AI model really is, right? When you look at the heart of a machine learning model, it's train me binarily, right? It's so funny that everybody speaks of AI, ML, all this kind of stuff is the most, you know, intensive models out there. And they really are. But at the end of the day, when you get down to it, it's just a decision tree that says yay or nay, or my good or bad, right? And so to understand something that's fraudulent, in my opinion, you have to understand everything that's Right. Because we all remember those days that, you know, you swipe a credit card and it comes up declined. Right. And it's for two dollars. So, you know, it's not like the money or you hope not. Uh, and then you get the phone call and, you know, it's, hey, we, we thought there was fraudulent because yesterday you bought something for a thousand dollars and that's abnormal. Right. And so I, I that I think is great protective mechanisms because they've had good data to be able to say I never spend a thousand dollars. Right. I think that those trends need to actually come outside of just the transactions and more upwards. 
because if you're looking at commercial clients, you really only, you don't really care at the credit metrics. You don't care at the approval. That's not going to indicate somebody's fraudulent or not, right? You're looking at the KYC, you're looking at their actual uh, transactions, which are outside of Encino, right? But I think that you can start leveraging it in terms of, you know, what actually clarifies this client in that whole 360 view, right? Is it abnormal to spend a thousand dollars, right? You know, is it because we just gave them a loan and that's why they just went and spent a thousand dollars, right? Because they have it and that now makes it okay. So I think that's where you're going to see those trends. It's less that, you know, Encino in its own right, in my opinion, um, is going to be that, you know, core area of, you know, fraud features and things. I think there's a lot of great vendors out there for it. I think it's more going to be, how do I enhance all those models to really tell me, okay, in the credit workflow or the deposit workflow, these are okay things. Let's make sure we scrub those out so that we don't get those false positives, right? We're not declining people's credit cards and other kinds of things because of something we already know inside of our bank, right? And that's where, you know, I believe in Sino staying on the Salesforce platform, everything being public API, you know, really driving in that direction. It's all at your fingertips. You need mm -hmm. to start using it. And that's really what they're kind of pushing in that area is like, okay, great. You, you want to use this vendor? For any purpose, right? And you heard them talk about that on the stage with like the digital app side. Go use that vendor, but use our APIs, use our data. Like it doesn't mean you're kind of keeping those things separate. You should understand what you're going to push and pull from these systems to create that better experience for someone. I think all of that makes a lot of sense. Uh, and I think that one important thing to balance is the customer inconvenience, customer experience risk of false positives versus the you know true financial risk of false negatives, right? And as I see more banks pushing towards true straight through processing, true hands-free underwriting, uh, I think that's going to be something that's very important is to, to make sure that they're balancing that appropriately. You know, I was just reflecting back on more from like a consumer standpoint, like with my wife and I, our favorite two credit cards, TJ Maxx, MasterCard, she racks up points and we go to TJ Maxx and she gets $100 worth of stuff for nothing. And then American Express. And I remember about four years ago, it was evident that TJ Maxx had implemented, or at least that MasterCard had implemented um, new like fraud detection software. And it was like every time we turned around. You know, the card was declined and it was shut down and, you know, and that's not us. Like we actually pay our credit card bills in full every month. Like we do not pay interest ever. And, and then just knowing more today about AI than I did then. And I think about topics like supervised learning versus fine tuning a platform like an AI platform or an LLM whose maybe job is fraud detection. It'll be interesting to see how that story continues to unfold. You know, like, do you find yourself in a situation where clearly your credit card has rolled out some new software and every time you turn around, you, you know, it's getting declined or I wonder if that smooths out in the future. So any thoughts on that? Well, I think the interesting thing, I think my, maybe Pierre said it um, or someone when they're on the keynote, uh, they said that the consumer experience has transcended into small business. I adjusted and say the consumer experience is the only experience, right? The bank doesn't exist, right? A, a corporation doesn't exist, right? It's just legal paper. You still have a person that's sitting behind. It's the same person that's buying something off Instagram. That's also signing your documents for a billion dollar loan at the same time, right? 
And those experiences, the more digital we get, the more consumer-like we need to get. And I think that, you know, you look at it on the standpoint of whether it's fraud, whether it's just, you know, filling out an application, any of that kind of stuff, people always are going to attest it to their consumer life, right? Like, how was I able to buy something in one click on Amazon? And it takes me all these things to go, you know, do a loan application. Everybody wants to forget, like, okay, well, you're buying something for 10 bucks on Amazon, right? Versus you're getting a $100 billion loan. Yeah, you probably need <laughs> a little bit more things for us, right? But that's the anticipation going into it, right? That's the expectation, uh, even if it's unsaid. And so I think that's what we're going to see a lot of. Um, and I think that's kind of where also Encino's getting to of this, you know, data community is that doesn't exist within corporations like it can in the consumer land. Right. We, why we're all worried about the fact that chat GPT can read all of our data and all of our Facebook posts. And yeah, it's kind of fun to play around with, but it's also super scary that it's going and doing all these things and how interconnected all of our consumer data really is within the corporate and the financial services world. It's, it's not like that. Right. And that's the really hard thing as product managers for us to create experiences that are consumer like, but not right. We don't have those same areas. So I think that's, you know, probably the biggest thing you're really going to see pushing out of it, whether you want to use it for fraud detection, you want to use it for, you know, a better customer 360 in an application uh, or just, you know, your, your ongoing portfolio management, you know, and just really understanding your client uh, over its time. It's really that you have to start actually looking at our data, like it's consumer data, right? Like what's actually relevant. What's not, what can I pull from other sources? What do I need to get from a human, right? It's like old school, you know, college primary and secondary research and, um, mm -hmm. I think right. that's going to be the really interesting thing. It's not just, hey, I, I went and bought fraud detection. I went and turned on something from Encino. You know, I'm using some flow from Salesforce. It doesn't matter, right? It, it's all just shiny objects. Um, and so I think that's what it really comes down to is, okay, now that I have all this, now that the you know industry for the most part has, has breached this, I have data and I've been begging you know, my people to give me this data for the longest amount of time, whether that comes from a customer or it comes from a banker. And now I think it's, it's actually that pivotal time that us in the technology space or the, the project space actually have to kind of, you know, step up the bat and then do something with it across the board in every industry, right? Or yeah. in bank is, you know, we actually have to prove to people that all this investment was worth it and all this data that we've been collecting you has been worth it. Uh, and that was definitely a big kind of undertone theme that all of us resonated with, right? We, no matter what bank you talk to, it was always the, what are you going to do with all this data, right? I don't ever see you doing anything with it. Well, and I, I think that's the, that's the important part, right? Like I think that the more, and, and everybody's always being asked for more permission to access data, but you need to get something out of it, right? You, you can't just keep handing over data and then walk into an experience where it's very clear that the bank doesn't know anything about you, right? That that creates a a real you know cognitive dissonance, I think, in the customer, and and leads to you know them going back to your point and comparing that experience they just had with a bank to the experience they had at Amazon, right? If if both of these organizations know as much as they know about me, and you know, arguably, your primary banking relationship should know way more about you than Amazon does, right? Like they've got you know, your, your transaction history, you know, on the commercial side, you know, they're, they're looking at all the data in your treasury, like they should know your business inside and out. And when they're not coming to that relationship, leveraging all the power of that data, you know, that, that sends a very strong signal about how much they care and invest about that business. Well, and that's where like, 
I always, in almost any feature I create, I take it back to the Amazon uh, buy now feature. I think it's the greatest feature ever, right? For it's data that sits behind it, right? Because everybody's looking at it and saying like, okay, two clicks, surf for something, or sometimes it's pushed to you, right? And I like it, click, done. Shows up my doorstep in 30 minutes. The amount of data that Amazon has collected over the years to be able to produce that experience is just literally breathtaking because they're actually using it, right? And I feel like being an Amazon customer and I use it way more than I should, uh, given my trash is just all Amazon boxes 24 seven, but it, it happened over time, right? The first Amazon experience wasn't that great. It asked me a lot of questions that I didn't really think mattered. Right. But then it finally figured out enough. And then you didn't have to put in your address anymore. Then you didn't have right. to put in your credit card every time. And then you didn't have right. to put in, you know, this is the preference. The subscribe and save is, you know, my default. Like all of a sudden things started clicking together. And then you hit that epitome of just click done. Right. Yeah. And then that's triggering off because I can't imagine on their op side everything that they've had to collect to be able to route that to the right center, to the right truck driver, to the right packaging person. And then it lands, you know, on my doorstep in 15 minutes. It's it's magic. I, I, I was thinking the other day, this is going to definitely like date me. But when I was a kid, I used to like watching Looney Tune cartoons. And I remember the, you know, the coyote or in some cases, Bugs Bunny would reach for the Acme catalog and like, you know, write something, drop it in a mailbox and stand there and like tap their feet three times. And then up would come the mail truck and deliver whatever they ordered, you know, the anvil or the bomb or what have you. And literally that's what Amazon is doing today, right? Like we sit there, we open up the website, we click a couple buttons, tap our feet three times and it's at our doorstep, which is just amazing when you think about it. Um, listen, I would love to keep chatting. We'll definitely have to have you back at some point in the future, Devin. I thank you again very much. Let me ask you, uh, where can our listeners reach out to you if they want to connect? Uh, just on LinkedIn. Uh, that's always the best way to get me. Um, and so happy to chat with anybody after this and appreciate you guys having me on. Awesome. I appreciate it. Have a great day. Yeah, great to connect, Devin. Have an awesome day. Thanks, everybody. excited this week to welcome Eric McCoy. Uh, Eric is a leader with more than 15 years of consulting, banking, and relationship management experience. He brings extensive knowledge to the banking industry through having held several leadership roles in banks, including in the commercial, retail, and technology realms. He's a Salesforce and Encino expert that's helped many financial institutions implement and optimize both platforms, improve the lending process, increase loan volume, manage risk effectively, and improve both the user and the client experience. Eric, welcome. Glad to have you on the podcast. Thank you guys. Yeah, glad to be here. Oh, I thought we could kick things off kind of nice and easy by asking Eric, tell us about your background using Encino, maybe getting into, and when did you first start using the product? Give us, give us the rundown. I've been specifically in the ecosystem since 2019, um, so about four years using Encino. I, I worked for a bank that had Encino, um, kind of helped lead their commercial group in it. Um, you know, I think from a holistic LOS perspective and, and just its integration into Salesforce, there's a lot of power behind what Encino has to offer. And for whatever reason, not a lot of other solutions have really been able to come and compete 
directly on that. Um, that's still where I think uh, Encino has a pretty big um, advantage. Those specific features and the parts of that product that really stand out for me is, I think a lot of what they've done uh, really getting into uh, automation of spreading, you know, that that's come a long way um, within, you know, I work in that space, obviously help clients in that space. So we'd help um, clients to kind of um, accelerate that um, as well. Uh, but also that end-to-end -end client portal where you can engage the client through either document exchange or even um, online application, um, getting people through that has been pretty powerful um, from that standpoint. But just the, the UI, I think that stands out for most people because it's a, it's a consolidated uh, environment, um, ecosystem that's there um, that you know, having to use typically that UI represents probably three or four systems out there that you'd be having to use another system for. So that tends to be where a lot of where I saw a lot of value and a lot of other um, clients we work with um, see that value. Uh, I've I've worked with Encino uh, probably for about six years now. Uh, I founded the Encino practice at Silverline and then have have nurtured the practice at a couple other SIs. I think, I think you're spot on, Eric. I mean, uh, the spreading feature definitely has had a lot of enhancement. It's really powerful now. Uh, the ability to work collaboratively in a portal environment and really cut down on cycles around iterating for, you know, asking for documents and, and giving the borrowers the ability to, to go in and see exactly what's needed and, and upload that in a secure fashion is super powerful. And then I agree 100%, especially in the commercial, like the heavy CNI, CRE space. If you're in a bank that is leveraging Salesforce, there's really no question as to why you wouldn't want to use Encino for those processes, you know, especially in eliminating those swivel chairs, those moving between four and five different uh, systems, getting that all done in, in one pane. And it also happens to be the same environment where you're tracking your relationship management, your overall decline for your business uh, is phenomenally powerful. So I agree with that hundred percent. Yeah. And just, you know, nice segue, you know, we're sitting here talking about features and capabilities, always new things happening, I'm sure in the Encino world. So insight 2023, I understand you were there, Eric, um, a exciting takeaways from, you know, from this conference, anything you want to highlight or talk about? Yeah, I, th I think the, the biggest one is Encino continues to invest in its platform and, and what it can deliver to the industry and into the market. And I think specifically, uh, it's not necessarily been a hidden factor that they haven't really considered this, but the bigger thing has been really around data. I think them seeing where AI is going and making more emphasis of, hey, we have a house a lot of data, you know, like, one of the great things about spreads is that you might be taking in a client that you're spreading and they have, you know, another relation, another entity that that bank might not have a um, engagement with, but it might be a big entity that is in some way connected to, um, to, to that, that borrower. And so they have to go and create a relationship for that so that that's information spreads, it, you know, fills into the spreading. And that itself is creating this data of external lead generation that's within the system now. And I think Encino over the last couple of years has probably really put an emphasis on trying to really understand all the data that's coming through. And now they're putting an emphasis on 
really pushing that out as the opportunities um, for them in the future of collecting that data, being, you know, a data warehouse in, in essence themselves, um, that they have a lot of data that comes through that. And so I think that's really a lot of the focus that was on this, this year. You look at the sessions, a lot of data-driven sessions um, that they had and to ensure that, our, you know, that becomes a, a focus. So that's going to be a big one. Um, I think there's some adjustments to a platform that they need to make. Uh, that's probably going to be for people like me and Fred, more of a wait and see, are they able to make those adjustments to ensure that they can really be what would be considered an open platform. And as that continues on, I think that's there. The one that I think for, for me personally, probably was not as impactful, but I think as you look at the sphere of financial industry, there's also that investment in simple nexus and how, you know, they're putting the focus on mortgage, um, they're making mortgage a little bit. So opening that up so that there's, you know, more of a competitor, you know, right now you really have encompass out there. That's kind of the main one or having NCO come along to have maybe a product that can compete with, um, encompass and, and then also leveraging some of that, the capabilities that, um, simple nexus has in their UI and some of those other things that might make, uh, and seen a little bit more agile um, was was interesting to see. So definitely a big focus on that. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And and I know you you started off by mentioning the data and the AI. AI is obviously you know everybody's lips these days, right? Everybody wants to inject more AI. Um, I love that Encino is taking the tact of for focusing first on the data and getting the data right. Um, in addition to that, you know, was there a lot of announcement around you know new features or baking more ai into the process once you do get the data right i do remember uh one of the the prior insight conferences i was at they announced you know nick and cno iq as i haven't kept up as much with you know how that's really been manifested in the product any, any new you know announcements or roadmap from from that perspective yeah i think uh, a lot of it was around kind of um enhancing that a little bit more with nick and uh, predictive analytics um doing a lot more uh, of that they talked about um rich data co that they're partnering with our uh, rdc uh so they're going to be doing which does some analytics on their uh, compliance side for assessing um living and 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 those pieces there so that was kind of the headlines were more when you looked at Pierre's keynote, the headlines weren't within that. Um, they did some on the um, some ancillary callouts there, but um, a lot of the keynote, uh, part of the keynote was um, uh, really expanding on that. So having that more data that's kind of becomes more predictive so that, you know, either you can be making predictive decisioning or, or other things like that, or even uh, uh, risk management. You know, you have that on the other side of the client so that um, you can have a little bit more uh, risk management pieces. So those were a couple of the things that we, that I heard there. And we actually got a chance, I got the chance to talk directly with um, RDC on kind of what they're looking to do. And so they're in the early stages of their partnership with Encino to bring better data into it and, and do it in a way that they can really position um things around especially around like renewals um you know the credit actions that you would call um that might be you know even review generated um to have more of an automated process there because 
realistically, a lot of that lives there. You're not having to create something, uh, you know, it's not, there's not as much science to that piece as there is in really collecting the data and understanding what mitigations might leave or any shortfalls within a credit, um, credit request, uh, reviews and, and, um, renewals typically are a lot more that is what the data is. No, I think, I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, the other area I was really interested in from what you mentioned was, you know, simple nexus. And I've had a little bit of a look at, at the platform. I, I've been a little bit hands-on with it. I've not leveraged it yet with a client. I think that um, last year, and, and I don't know about in your business, you know, we made a little bit of a bet around mortgage just a little bit ahead of the interest rates going up and, and mortgage companies kind of pulling back on investment. So I've not had a lot of opportunity to really take that out to be client facing. Uh, I do know, or I say, I think I, I believe that I know that Simple Nexus still maintains its own user conference and its own user group. So are they doing some stuff to bring that more together or, and I don't know if you have any insight in that or not. Yeah. I think that they had, they have a, a strong enough following call it already that they've they've kept that there but at the conference there were much more i would say i don't know if i have a guess i might be a little high on this guess but about 25 percent was mortgage like mortgage related in one way or the other which was vastly different from last year where they had just announced it for obvious reason but had just done it but there definitely was a bigger emphasis on on that piece of it and so they had bigger or bigger displays, bigger opportunities for people, at least in their immediate lounge to come through mm-hmm. and see um, things that were specific to um, the mortgage side. So um, definitely was a, an effort to put more behind that. That's cool. That's exciting. It's definitely a neat product for what I've seen so far. And I, I love that it's getting more exposure across the broader Encino community. Yep, it is. It definitely is. And we'll see. But to your point, I don't know that if you could always predict kind of things uh, with something that's mortgage-based, I don't know. The good news is they'll have probably a fairly good runway to get things right, to kind of align things before there's too much of a high demand. But yeah, same thing is, I think coming on the other side of this, not so much for mortgage companies, but definitely more for banks that want to have maybe a simpler online experience with, on the mortgage side, or they want to turn um, streamline their own mortgage process this should give them that that capability you know kind of probably compete a little bit with on the salesforce side rocket mortgage and that offering yeah they have um there so i think that's that's definitely if you read between the lines on this is kind of what encino was looking to do but at the same time i'm sure it was to solve some technical debt that they they were hoping to do with some of the um ui um you know front you know front end and back end um, uh, UI and, and capabilities that they needed to probably sure up a little bit better. Eric, I was interested in the UOR t-shirt with Salesforce Flow and in the Sino session. Did you attend that session? I did not get to that session, unfortunately, no. Um, it was on our list. Um, I, I was able uh, to make it. Um, what I gathered from what was discussed um, was really that whole cleaning up the technical debt a little bit, you know, kind of from a offering perspective and, and, and streamlining it a little bit. Um, 
the person that went that we had go said that it was you know pretty good but was expected i think it was um a little bit basic in yeah. nature but i think that's going to be the interesting thing of is how much can Encino adopt some of these things and and improve upon what their platform and how their platform is designed and managed um because visual force pages is still an issue and so um until we get past that um that's that's definitely got to still kind of have when they can fully migrate off of that then that will be a a, a big win did they articulate you know whether it was that session or somewhere else kind of a broader strategy to mitigate some of the technical debt you know on the platform i mean it is really powerful and having seen it you know evolve over the years i think there's definitely been a lot of emphasis and and obviously the market rewards it in rolling out new features uh, but to your point, you know, visual force is still a thing. There's still a lot of workflow rules that are behind the scenes. Any visibility into what that looks like on the product roadmap, or was that not a big topic? That wasn't a big topic, and I think the biggest reason is because of what they're trying to do with their client portal and trying to get that fully exposed. Um, and we're still getting differing um, tidewards of when that's supposed to happen. Um, then. That's the biggest one because it has an impediment on deposit account opening, which is a really big need in the marketplace today. And then also, um, you know, online um, application. Uh, I think, Fred, you probably are, you know, I mean, you see some of these, you know, larger uh, implementation partners that have more of a technical approach on this that can be fairly complex. Um, we don't like going there because it's in our opinion for a lot of our clients, it's just mm-hmm. not manageable. And, and so it, 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 it makes it a little bit more challenging um, for that. But I think, I think it's some of this happening on the sales, Salesforce work, you know, kind of, because that's obviously what impacts, um, and you know, uh, the bigger one though, because of how data needs to flow and you now are bringing in, because that's, that's the piece of when you look at um, even these flows and, and, and other things, this architecture in the background, it's all data related. And so we're going to want to get to a point where that is, you know, it's not all being put in and seeing no Salesforce, it's being put into a warehouse somewhere and not even that stored, like it's just be able to populate that data fairly, fairly fast. So that piece I think plays a bigger part in, in the future of all of this, that some of this, because, you know, validation rules, other things like that, those, which validation rules will, will definitely play a part, but to what extent is that needed? Because it always that, and, it, and if you can limit that by how your, your data automation, whatever the, the triggers are, or, or whatever the orchestrator is, then that, that changes it. So I think that's going to be the biggest thing is we definitely are getting stuff within our our, um, our organization of how do we do that? How do we, uh, really start to solve for a future, um, problem. It's interesting. I'm thinking about snowflake again. I, yeah. Fred and I were talking about snowflake just earlier today. Um, yeah. So let, let me ask you this, Eric, was there, was there anything about in the site 2023 that, uh, that you wanted to see in the conference and it wasn't there. Maybe something that you were surprised that it was missing or hoping for anything that comes to mind. They had a pretty good broad 
offering there that you had. You had a very broad offering, and um, I, there wasn't anything that was outside of it. I think probably the biggest thing was things were so condensed. It was really hard um, to get there. So um, there's probably things that they were offering that just wasn't easy for to get to. And um, I think, yeah, that, that's some of the feedback just overall, I think, could have been is just making it a little bit easier to get there and then um, being in the lounge and, and things like that. But I think they did a pretty good job of balancing everything that was was anticipated um, and kind of on the forefront of what of what they're trying to do. Um, so I didn't necessarily see a big miss on anything with there other than um, just the, the ability to get to all the sessions. Yeah, it sounds like a, a bit of a embarrassment of riches, you know, similar to, to Dreamforce. You know, there's no way you could possibly make it to everything that's offered, and it's, it's yeah. just difficult to, you know, to your point, you wanted to get to the session about flow that Dane asked about, and you couldn't make it to that one, and, and you're just not going to get everything. Um, that, and I don't know that there's really a good way to, to solve for that. I think they're getting to the point where you have to almost – at least for the people that go, um, provide the on-demand um, piece because they don't do that where Salesforce does. So I think that's that's an opportunity is to provide that on-demand, you know, beyond the keynotes. Yeah, I think I think that would be really good. I mean, I know you always want to strike the balance between cannibalizing people showing up at the conference, and I always say, and this is not just me as like the the consultant sales guy, but just in general, that you get way more out of going to a conference and just kind of sitting back and watching the webinars. It's about the hallway conversations. It's about the networking. Oh, absolutely. But but for yeah. the people that can't make it or for the people that do make it and just can't get to everything, some kind of a library I think would make, you know, phenomenal sense. Yeah, I think if you spend that amount of money or invest in that, they should have that so that you can go elsewhere and do that. So hopefully that's something that they open up because you know this was their biggest one yet i mean they tripled in size from the year previously so that's a that's amazing they're they're back in in charlotte uh definitely a different field in raleigh how how did that all work out was how was the the conference in that bigger environment it was good i mean it, it's funny when you when you look at because i think total registration registrants was around 2000 or something like that um and when you compare that to at least the last, I mean, I went to last year's Dreamforce, but the last big Dreamforce before COVID was 180,000 people in San Francisco for, for Dreamforce. And so um, you're always thinking of, oh, well, this is going to be huge or, you know, thinking about Encino. And it still was, it definitely was was bigger and there was a lot going on. I mean, for as many people was there, there sure were, were a lot of events. Um, I thought it was, it was good, you know, it was... Um, yeah, they definitely had a much bigger space. Um, it was probably about three times as big, which made it a little bit more challenging getting getting mm-hmm. around. Um, you know, like I said, I mean, there were so many competing uh, events, even the ones that we we were sponsoring and and, and hosting had challenges in getting people to it because there was just so much going on. Um, you know, with that, but I think for it being the first, and I think this was Encino's own feedback. Whereas, yeah, you know, hey, this is the, we're kind of growing up here, and you know, this is a, a new 
a new opportunity. And so, um, it worked well. Um, they, they centralized it as much as they could. So you could make it, um, as easy. Um, not all the venues could be as close, but, um, I think that it was, it was done. It was done well. Um, and yeah, they, they're looking to probably, uh, capitalize on some lessons learned for, yeah, I mean, I think every time I've gone, it's been, you know, bigger and, and more exciting. So I'm sure they'll take that feedback to heart. I, I know that in having, you know, planned experiences at the last several in Raleigh, like it was just so nice having everything, you know, very close. And, and although the options were not probably as extensive as they were in Charlotte, there were plenty of things, you know, kind of right walking distance. And so I'm sure they'll, that'll just, you know, continue yep. to get better. I wanted to ask about something else, just to pivot a little bit. You know, the conference, in the shadow of just the general banking news, regional banking news, during the conference, there was a, another bank, PacWest, that had uh, some news that caused their shares to uh, seesaw a little bit based on their deposit loss. You know, just in general, how how did that show up at the conference? You know, whether it be from Encino's perspective or from other attendees, you know, was that the elephant in the room or were people talking about it you know it's 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 interesting because in talking with our clients just across the board sure it is a challenge to answer your question directly it was not a, a big topic because a lot of the institutions gully you know now have a pretty good idea of, of where they're at or they they start to kind of sure things up uh, i think the fed has helped with some of the communication to yeah, really to reassure the the public and and those banking um, customers that you know these banks really banks in general are not at risk, um, you know totality wise. There's still risk there because we are in a raising continue to be in a raising rate our uh, rate environment, and for some banks that made the choice of keeping you know continuing to offer low interest rate loans, that is definitely a need and especially if they are in, in need of deposits um but what i'm hearing from clients and that we talk with a lot is there a lot of them feel good about where they're at you know from that from that standpoint and so i think that was the most reflective in at the conference was people feeling good enough with their with where they are at and you know how they're mitigating um the, the challenges in the marketplace uh, I think you're gonna out of eight thousand institutions and take four thousand banks. You know, if you just want to call banks because credit unions aren't having the same, you know, which is just partly because of the mm-hmm. model. But themselves, you know, you've had three get hit pretty hard. You know, call it four if you weren't, and now five. So I think that from from a percentage wise, it's still pretty low. And it shows kind of addictiveness that at at large banks are feeling pretty good about it because I think you would have seen much more of a domino effect. I still think that five to 10 more banks in the next year probably are possible, but looking at the grand scheme of things, that's still pretty low. And we've had actually, you really look at it, we've had historical low um, attrition, meaning bank failure in the marketplace for the last you know, probably mm-hmm. 10 years, you know, it's been a lot lower because what the, what the fed did, the good thing about what came out of 2008 was the stress testing and the requirements and then lowering the ceiling 
of, you know, we're now hitting $10 billion threshold. Banks at the $10 billion level has to be at a certain compliance and regulatory, have all these requirements now that they didn't have before. And um, I think those things are ensuring that um, some of these banks are stronger and, and able to weather storms. Like yes, this. no, I, I agree with all of that 100%. I think it's very much become a little bit of a tail wagging the dog scenario. It is the outliers that are uh, getting all the headlines and, and, you know, looking to your point at the rate of bank failures, the banks are failing at a much lower rate than they ever have since the beginning of the banking system in this country. However, we did have some very big blips, right? And I think that, you know, has gotten people a little nervous. I, I was the most interested in some of the things we've talked about on the podcast before is, you know, where's the opportunity for the banks to to come behind and pick up deposits or to project strength into the market? Uh, I don't think everybody who is looking at the the balance sheet strength of their bank or maybe was, you know, had deposits at one of these banks has been taken over is going to end up with the big five. And so if you're outside of the big five and you're interested in growing your deposits, you know, what can you do to take advantage of this situation? And then how can you respond if you're on the bubble and potentially maybe one of those banks that, to your point, there could be a couple more down the road how do you get in front of that? Less from a balance sheet perspective and more just from a communications and customer uh, experience perspective. Yeah, I mean, that, and it's a really important conversation to be having. And it's, some, it's a message that we're really trying to send through our networks, not just our clients, but our networks is you've got to continue to invest in your digital um, capabilities. Like, it's great that we want to have these relationships that are face to face driven, cult high touch. But you've got to have the capabilities of taking that and really ensuring that you're able to support necessary growth, uh, deposit growth, and uh, even the ability through some marketing tool, controlling that narrative that you have with the clients and ensuring that you're having direct interaction with them that shows that, hey, you know, quickly pick up or maintain deposits as you need to, or even on more, you know, lending side, depending if you're able to be aggressive on the lending side, but the other side that you have the, the capabilities there to do that and ensure that you're um, managing those things. Because on the other flip side of this, our third wheel that we talk about is that risk management, you know, having things in real time that you can go through uh, reports and dashboards that you can easily ensure are, are actually um, accurate because that's the other thing. A big mess in all this is the gaps that you probably talked to a lot of banks about is they have broken data, like their data is broken. And so when you look at that, those digital capabilities, it's, it's ensuring that you have the data that works for you because you, you could be thinking a lot of things fine, but your data is broken or something like that. And it's not the right story that you're thinking. I actually do have one other question. Um, so what is, what's the vibe? at these, at, at like an insight conference, is it fun? Is it, what's the energy like? Is there music? Are there colorful characters? Like there are at Dreamforce, like talk about that aspect of, of the conference. Yeah. I don't know, Fred, how much you remember for last year, but they definitely increased that. Like when you came in the first evening for the kind of kickoff that was on Tuesday, they had like this kind of hallway where they had 
all these different lights that you could walk. That's cool. And take pictures and whatnot. Yeah, and then they had uh, people on stilts and, um, you know, kind of walking around to make it far. And, um, you know, it definitely was that. And then this year they did it. They did their big thing at NASCAR Hall of Fame. Oh, that's cool. Um, and so, yeah, that was, that was cool. Um, I think uh, many people that thought from last year, because they had one Republic mm-hmm. as the band um, for last year was at the museum. Uh, didn't have a band this year, but they had, you know, good music and there was just a lot of activities to do. So I think that was good because it's such a small population of people going and so many people are running. Uh, I think you start to see the, the drop off of energy pretty fast. Whereas, you know, not that you don't have that dream force, but yeah, you know, we, we weren't necessarily running all our, you know, breakout session. Cause that's, that's just not a winnable. That's not, that, that's not a winnable plan. You're not going to do that. You need to make a choice. So what are you really going to do? Maybe a couple sessions to go through, but then you're making sure you're getting um, in contact with other people. So, or, you know, meeting up with people, but I, I thought that energy uh, was pretty good. And, and there was, there was good excitement. You know, people are excited. There's, there's continued optimism with what Encino has to bring. And just the fact that, you know, you were up in that 2000 range was pretty good kind of reflection of, um, you know, a lot of the market buy-in and, and market adoption that's happening around there. Cause you have larger banks like us bank and, and Wells Fargo leading the way on the innovation side to kind of be the example to other, other banks that this is what you, this is what's possible with Encino. Cool. Great, great information, Eric. Yeah, I I really missed the opportunity to go this year. Every time I've gone, it's been enjoyable. And so I've definitely already added next year's dates to my calendar, and hopefully I'll be able to make it. But thanks again, Eric. I really appreciate your time. Let me ask you, uh, if our listeners are looking to reach out, if they want to connect with you, what's the best place to find you? Yeah, definitely LinkedIn. I'm Eric McCoy uh, at Zenify. Should be fairly easier to look me up and I just connect with me and I'm, I'm happy to always have conversation with people. I love talking about things like this. I'm very passionate about what I get to do, what we get to do. Uh, I think I didn't need a wake up call of, you know, how important these are, but I think I really look at PPP and when you look at the, the divergence of, you know, who really excelled during PPP and was able to deliver in the marketplace, uh, it was a very small set of financial institutions. Because of that, there were a lot of businesses that that missed out, that had to close their doors, weren't able to continue on, and that opened up that, you know, and, and I was at an institution, in five days, we had a, a PPP loan yeah. process up and running off of Salesforce. Very simple, didn't take a lot, and we were able to extend record amounts of, um, capital wow. into the market and so you know those are the things that really gets me excited and and so i love talking about this because it is part of who i am and um i love helping institutions to kind of do that out and say hey you know one of the questions we like to ask you know, or i like to ask is you know before ppp where do you wish you would have been and where are you now you know are you still where you wish you would have been because you're not that's where your investment needs to be and you need to really focus. On. Yeah, no, it's, a, it's an amazing point. I couldn't agree more. I mean, this really is in the same way a passion for me. I really feel that 
my mission is to help organizations help the public, you know, consumers and, and businesses be connected with the financial resources that they need. And, and PPP has come and gone by and large. I mean, obviously there's still outstanding loans, but that's not the last time it's going to happen. And having those digital underpinnings, that digital foundation really lets banks respond in a, in a way that they're serving the communities and, and the peoples that they're trying to serve. So I think that makes a ton of sense. Well, thank you again for the time, Eric, and uh, hope we'll chat again soon. Yeah. Thanks, Matt. Yeah. Appreciate it. And we're back with Quick Takes. Dane, what do you have for us this week? Hey, Fred. Great to connect, as always. I've been following the Senate hearings in and around AI regulation. So Sam Altman, CEO of OpenAI, has been testifying in these recent hearings in and around AI regulation. Altman believes AI will be transformative, of course, in very positive ways transformative. He also wants to ensure it's aligned with human values and the public good. What's your take? I think it's a critically important question. I have not been following the Senate hearings uh, really at all, although I have been following kind of the broader topic. I think that in my mind, I generally think of regulation around AI in two broad buckets. You know, one is, I think it's the, the part that always gets the headlines, is regulating model development. So there was the open letter that was signed by Elon Musk, you know, several other leading technology and AI figures basically saying, let's put a pause on developing new, more sophisticated models until we can understand what's happening up I think that threat is overblown. And we've talked before, like, I just don't think that you're going to take the technology that's in use now for things like ChatGPT, which is large language models, and get to general intelligence, get to something that these these folks are, are nervous about, which is, you know, Skynet, for lack of a better word. Uh, and it's also difficult to regulate, right? Like, you can readily buy the equipment got a friend that just, you know, built a computer with, with two graphics cars and is designing, you know, a, a model in his, in his house. You can go spin up, you know, some capacity on Amazon or in Azure and start trading a model and it's just very difficult to detect. So I think that part of regulation is, you know, difficult to execute and probably uh, reactionary. Um, the other side though, on model deployment, I think we definitely need to look at how these models are having an impact on individuals' lives. And, you know, I'll pull a page from you know, both of our lives, recruiting and hiring. And, and I know there's differences. We've talked about it before in what you can do in inbound versus outbound recruiting. But when you think about some of these aggregators like a ZipRecruiter and others, you know, they're using algorithms to present qualified candidate lists. And in many cases, you talk to the hiring managers that are leveraging services like that. They can't necessarily point to what makes the magic in the middle work. You know, what's inside the black box? And is that having disproportionate impact on on people and excluding people that would otherwise be qualified for a job? That's real impact and we probably should be looking at it. 
Um, and then you start thinking about deploying AI models into more and more places that are going to have impacts on people's lives, like healthcare, like finance. We really need to make sure that we understand what's going into those decisions. And I, I welcome, and I'm glad to hear people like Altman welcome, you know, some level of oversight to that because it's, it's going to have a real impact on, on real people. Yeah. You're bringing up some really great points, Fred. I'm, you know, sort of summarizing, you know, clearly regulation must consider issues around, around data, around, you know, data use, privacy, intellectual property, algorithmic bias, which is probably going to be a hot topic. Uh, workforce impact. Everyone is talking about that. Don't mess with my money, right? Um, <laughs> but regulation can be restrictive and can slow progress and can impact, you know, competitiveness. So determining the right approach definitely is going to require a multi-stakeholder approach, input. Going to be interesting to continue to follow this story and just see how it unfolds. Yeah, you know, absolutely. I mean, there's a, there's a ton of issues. You know, one thing that you brought up just now is data availability and data rights. You know, there's a number of lawsuits right now, everybody from, from Getty Images, individual artists, to, you know, people that own large collections of publications that are seeing their work being reproduced in part in the output of these models. And, you know, have they been compensated for that? How do you deal with, with rights and attribution? Um, it's, it's authority issue. And I think that, you know, I mean, it's exciting that there's this much progress, but we do need to start putting some guardrails around how we govern both the data that's going into these models, what's happening in the middle, and then the data that's coming out of it to make sure it's having the right impact. And it's an exciting time. And then to your point, like we don't exist in a vacuum. I want to raise another thing around AI in external impacts that we didn't initially realize. And that is, you know, the impact to energy and carbon, you know, the development of AI models is using a ton of energy, you know, both for the power and the cooling needs for these data centers. And I know that both of us, you know, we've been using and trying a lot of AI, but have you given any thought to the carbon impact? It's a really good point. Yeah. Great segue. Great point. I, uh, you know, I, I'm a total tree hugger, man. I love mother nature. I'm, I'm always thinking about our environments, not as hardcore as some are about, you know, putting all the blame on humans. I think that there is a natural cycle that happens there, but, and it's a closed loop system, at least as I understand it, I'm referring to our atmosphere and, you know, massive amounts of computing power are going into, especially these mega sort of LLM models. And there is a carbon footprint there. Um, you know, technology is also contributing to um, capturing carbon in some pretty interesting ways. So I think we're going to figure it out, but it's just another aspect of this that, you know, obviously has to be taken into consideration. You're, you're spot on and it's very clear. The weather patterns are changing. The earth is getting warmer and the more carbon in the air, the warmer the earth gets, right? So whether you say it's, it's human or whether you say it's not human or a combination of the both, you know, th those are the facts, right? So the problem is carbon. And the more I think about it, the solution is not changing human behavior, right? We're not going to change 
consumption patterns were not going to change you know, people's desire to travel, people's desire for technology on any kind of a scale that's going to really, you know, kind of put that genie back in the bottle. And so from my perspective, we either need to, one, find a way to generate truly clean energy at scale, or two, find a way to do carbon sequestration at scale, or both. And I love that you brought it up. I've been really excited uh, to see some of the commitments from companies like Occidental Petroleum. Uh, they're building a $1 billion facility right now in the Permian Basin, near and dear to where I grew up, to basically suck carbon dioxide out of the air, turn it into some kind of a, a solid, semi-solid substance, and pump it down back into the earth. Um, and they're not just building one, they, they're building a second one uh, in South Texas that should be operational in 2024. And then they announced that their goal is to roll out 70 of these facilities across the globe by 2035. And so if we had more companies making this type of commitment, both on, you know, the, the carbon generation side, like, you know, Occidental is a, is a petroleum company, as well as on the consumption side, you know, these large data centers, you know, making commitments to carbon sequestration, I think that is part of the answer. And the other thing that I got really excited about, fusion energy. And, you know, fusion energy has been a dream but since I was a kid reading about it. Um, and I know people have been working on it for long before then. But last week, an actual commercial deal, Microsoft signed an agreement to purchase electricity from a nuclear fission generator called Helium Energy. And the thing that I found the most shocking is that Helium thinks that they will have their facility up and running and able to deliver energy to Microsoft by 2028. Uh, quick math, that's five years. So we are, according to Microsoft and Helium, five years away from commercially viable fusion energy. And, you know, this initial commitment is not huge, it's 50 megawatts, which is tiny con compared to how much we need for the national grid or global consumption. But it's not nothing. You know, the U.S. first two offshore wind farms generate about 42 megawatts. So it is going to have an impact. And, and I just think that's super exciting. You know, I definitely keep up with a lot of different sustainable energy initiatives, et cetera. Living in Florida, I've got to say, like, you know, the, the solar panel programs that are here are really attractive. They're super hard to say no to. And you know, we're actually exploring one for our home as we speak, and I'm seeing them crop up in our neighborhood and people are reducing their energy bills. And it's, I don't know, it's interesting to see how it decentralizes, how it works in Florida is when you're capturing energy on your roof, you actually send that energy for all intents and purposes. You literally send it back to the power company, Florida Light and Power. And then they give you your allotment and then any additional energy that you're producing, they share with other people. And uh, there's some other kind of nuances to that that some people aren't fond of. But overall, I think it's a good deal. To your point on Fusion, though, when you were talking about it, I couldn't help but to Google it. You know, Fusion was first sort of like detected, discovered, etc. in 1933. Yeah, not crazy. Wow, it is hundred hundred years. Let's let's hope that uh, Helium has it figured out. Let's hope that you know twenty other people 
have it figured out and that we can roll this out because I mean, I think solar is definitely a piece of the puzzle. I think wind is definitely a piece of the puzzle, but we are hungry for energy, not just in the U S but globally. And, and we need a lot of different options to move to truly clean energy, you know, across the board. And I, I think that would be nominal. Um, last thing I wanted to bring up was uh, last week, the call for speakers at Dreamforce opened up, which is exciting. It's crazy to think that Dreamforce is literally right around the corner. Uh, for any of you listeners that follow the blog, we did put out a post earlier this week with eight secrets to Dreamforce speaker success. Um, I've spoken to Dreamforce a few times, uh, and I'm actually speaking at Midwest Dreaming in August. And I can tell you firsthand that preparing your submission, preparing your presentation is no small commitment. Dana, I wanted to get your take. You know, they always say one of the benefits you get is, you know, visibility and career development. From your perspective, you know, what are your thoughts? Is it is it worth the, the squeeze um, to go in and, and put the effort into putting together and submitting a Dreamforce presentation? I think so, 100%. I, I, you know, I view it as it falls into like that brand building bucket. And, you, you know, anytime you're doing, you're taking steps, you're doing things like, for example, joining us, you know, here on our podcast or someone else's podcast, even steps like that, you know, anything that's building your brand is super smart in terms of, you know, advancing career. I think it also feels good, you know, like a lot of times those initiatives are, you know, really about making a difference and making an impact. And that's kind of what we're thinking about first, not necessarily just, you know, our careers and how we're advancing our careers. So maybe the career piece is like icing on the cake, but without question, that is brand building and definitely makes an impact on career path and career advancement. Cool. No, that's, that's great. I'm excited for my Midwest Dreaming slot. I am thinking right now and hoping to get a couple of uh, submissions in for Dreamforce. And you know, I encourage uh, everyone out there in our audience, if you've got something interesting, interesting use case, interesting how-to, some business perspective, uh, submit it. I, I think the more diversity that we have in submissions and ideas, the, the better the conference is going to be. And if you do get selected, and I will, I will try to make it to your session. I'd definitely love to hear uh, anything that our audience has to share. Uh, well, thanks, Dean. This was a awesome quick takes, and I look forward to chatting with you again soon. For sure. Have a great day, Fred. You too. Well, everyone, we hope you enjoyed episode three of Banking on Disruption. I can't thank our guests, Devin Griffin and Eric McCoy, enough for sharing their insights pun intended, from the 2023 Insight Conference. We have a lot of exciting stuff planned for upcoming episodes, but most importantly, we want to hear from you. Dana and I would love to hear your thoughts, feedback, and ideas for new episodes. Why not drop us a line? New episodes drop every other Thursday, but in the meantime, you can visit our website at bankingondisruption.com for show notes, including a full transcript of today's show. Also, if you like what you heard today, please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review. And finally, we'd love it if you followed us on LinkedIn and Instagram at at Banking on Disruption. Until next time, this is Fred Cadena wishing you success in your digital pursuits.
Thank you for listening to the Banking on Disruption podcast. All opinions expressed by Devin Griffin are his individually and are not intended to reflect the views of his employer.